Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This is a commissioning service, but we are not just commissioning the turners. We are commissioning them alone and going, but we are being commissioned by the Holy Scriptures in sending. We are commissioned this morning as a church in our sending of our dear brother and sister. We are commissioned in gospel ministry. There are really only three options that you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, have in this life. There's only three options. You are either going to go with the mission of the gospel on your lips to the nations. You are either going to send people with the gospel on their lips to the nations, or you are going to be disobedient to Jesus Christ. You are either going to be a sender or a goer, but you cannot remain outside of those two spheres. And therefore, this morning, we are not just saying, be warm and be filled, and we are excited that they are going, and then life, as usual, will stay the same for us. No, this is a commissioning service for us as well, to be engaged in gospel ministry in a different way than the Turners are specifically, but with the exact same motivation. What is that motivation? I want us to see the motivation for going, the motivation for sending in Isaiah chapter Six, four life-altering truths in this text that if you understand them and you apply them to your life will change everything about who you are and everything about what you do. So let's read these verses together and then we will quickly go through these four life-altering truths. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Father, we ask that you would do a miraculous work. We see the text. We see words on a page. But with physical fleshly eyes, we cannot see anything that we are intended to see, spiritually speaking, in this book, this supernatural book, apart from your Holy Spirit doing the work of illuminating our understanding. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would Be pleased to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. 
and that these truths that are so clear in this text would leave an indelible mark on our hearts. We would not remain unaffected. We would not walk out these doors the same. We can't if we understand the reality of these truths. Something must change. And God, I pray that as we are excited and commissioning the turners to go, God, I pray that even through this sermon and this commissioning Sunday, you would place in the heart of someone in this room a desire to go. Maybe to specific places like Albania or specific places around the world and people groups that they are familiar with. Maybe the location has yet to be determined. But God, I pray that you would raise up from Christ Bible Church missionaries who would count their life cheap and would go and make their only aim to make Christ known where he has yet to be named. Do that work in our hearts that we would cry out, here we are, Lord, send us. Do that work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Four life-altering truths in this text. We're going to have to go quickly through them. Number one, clearly we can see in verses one through four, God is incomprehensibly glorious. God is incomprehensibly glorious. Glorious, our God reigns. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Micah preached from Psalm chapter 2 two weeks ago. And in Psalm 2, we see the nations that are warring and raging against God. They're walking about. They're frustrated with his laws and his commands. And they want to throw all those things off of them. And then we see God sitting on a throne. He, he is not worried. He is not anxious. He is alive. He is well. And he is reigning. Our God reigns. King Uzziah had died in this year in Isaiah chapter 6. King Uzziah had an amazing reign. 52 years as king, Second Chronicles chapter 26, gives us the full understanding of his earthly reign. He was made king when he was 16 years old, and then he reigned for 52 years. 52 years. We have a president for maybe four years, maybe longer than that, but 52 years as king. And almost all of those years were amazing years of following God and obeying his commands. But his end was horrible. You know his end. Uh, Second Chronicles chapter 26 says, when his heart became proud... He thought, I can do things that I'm not allowed to do by God's decree. I can do them because I'm amazing. I'm awesome. And in his pride, he went into the temple and he wanted to sacrifice incense in the temple. He wanted to burn incense to God. It was only allowed for the priests and therefore he was given leprosy and he died. His reign ended very badly. And in the year that he died, God is still alive and well. Presidents come, presidents go. Leaders come, leaders go. Kings come, kings go. That's the way the world will always be. But there's one king who has always been and will always be, and that is God. Our God reigns. He's sitting on a throne. He's exalted in full sovereign authority. That's such a beautiful promise. God is sovereign over every molecule of this universe. We do not have presidents who are sovereign over the entirety of the universe. Our president, Donald Trump, is not sovereign over the world. We have leaders in the known world that 
Some of them can be terrifying. Some of them have been terrifying. Some of them in history past, uh, uh, Hitler, uh, Stalin. These people were not sovereign. Our God reigns. He is exalted. He's sovereign. He's on a throne. Verse 2, seraphim are standing around him, each having six wings. With two, they're covering their face. With two, they're covering their feet. And with two, they're flying. Seraphim, literally um, a transliteration of a Hebrew word. You know a Hebrew word, seraphim. Uh, literally in the Hebrew, it would be seraphim, because the em is the plural ending, and seraph just means to be burning. So seraphim means burning things, burning ones. What are they burning with? Are they on fire, literally? Are they burning with passion? Maybe it's both. But they are burning with a message that they cannot hold in, and that message is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They're singing, they're worshiping, they're yelling, and their yelling, verse 4, shakes the foundations of the thresholds of God's temple. It's got to be hard to do to shake God's temple, and yet their yelling does just that. This is an ongoing song. If you were to fast forward all the way to Revelation, we see the exact same word-for-word song that the seraphim are still singing um, hundreds and hundreds of years after Isaiah's vision of our sovereign God. This song is their song of choice. They're singing. While you and I were snoring last night, they were singing last night. They don't cease to sing. And what is their song selection? Is it a Sovereign Grace tune? Is it an Enfield tune? Is it a Hillsong tune? Is it a Gettys tune? It's just holy, holy, holy. They have nothing else to say other than our God is holy. Holy. What does it mean that God is holy? Often we just equate that with sinless, and that's true. God is sinless. There is no sin in him. He's never had a wrong thought. He's never done a wrong thing. He is sinless, yes. But in a very technical, real sense, the angels are as well. These seraphim are sinless as well. Uh, The angels, um, most likely during the week of creation, were given an option when Lucifer decided, I want to fight against God. God said, okay, anybody else want to go with him? And a third of the angels, Revelation tells us, went with Satan and decided to war against God. And the ones that did not rebel against God, those angels are sinless. They've never sinned. They they are perfect. And yet in their perfection, they say there's one greater than us. So holy doesn't just mean sinless. Holy means separated from, completely different, other. Uh, You could translate the word other or completely separated. So God is without error, yes, but he's also without equal. There's no one like him. That's a great way to translate holy. There's nobody like him. Isaiah chapter 40, who are you going to compare me to, says the Holy One. There's no one like me. Isaiah chapter 45 says just that. There is no one like our God. And so the seraphim are saying just that. There's nobody like you, God. No one in all of human history has ever been or ever will be like you. There's no one like our God. It's interesting that they say, holy, holy is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his, and you would think it would be holiness because that's what they're so excited about. But they say glory, which helps define what glory is. Glory is God's holiness going public. Glory is God's holiness on display. Glory is us being able to see that there is a holy God. We don't see God's holiness. We can't, it's not a visceral thing that we can see, but we can see that he is holy because of his glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We have an incomprehensibly glorious God. That's who he is. What about us? Verse 5, 
Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. What is Isaiah's response to seeing this incomprehensibly glorious God? It's not wow, it's woe. Woe is a term of I'm cursed, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm lost. And that leads us to the second life-altering truth. Number one, God is incomprehensibly glorious. Number two, we are sinfully lost. We are a sinfully lost people. I'm lost, I'm cursed, I'm undone. Notice why he says that. I'm, I'm cursed, woe is me, cursed am I, because I am a man of unclean lips. This is amazing. What's Isaiah's occupation? He's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of the Lord, literally when he speaks and says, thus saith the Lord, God's words pass through his lips. And yet he says, though I speak on behalf of God, my speech is what condemns me here. I have unclean lips. Probably one of the most holy people in all of Israel is saying, I am unclean. Similar to what we're going to study in James this next semester. If you can bridle the tongue, then you can be completely holy. That nobody can bridle a tongue. Therefore, nobody can be completely holy. The tongue is one of the hardest, it's, it's the hardest place to control in your sinfulness. And so that's why he goes right there, I know I have spoken unclean things. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I just love this passage. We live in a day and age where Christians have become very undiscerning. Can we just say Christians as a whole, evangelicalism as a whole, has bred gullible people? So we have books. You know, I went to heaven and I came back to talk about it. Books. There's like a, a section in Amazon that you can, you can click on those categories of books. I died, I went to heaven, I saw God, and I came back down. There's a whole category of those books. And almost all of those books, I'm... I'm I'm cynically optimistic, right? I would love for that to be true. But when I find something that disagrees with God's word, I'm going to say, yeah, it's not. Graciously, but it's not true. And one of the things that always stands out to me is the way that they interact with God. They see God and they think, oh, this is so awesome. One of them describes God as having blue hair and he smells like rainbows. What is that? I don't even know what, what does a rainbow smell like. Isaiah, the most holy man in all of Israel, sees God and says, I need to die. We've seen this in the book of Judges, right? Gideon says, I've seen the Lord. I'm going to die. We're going to see this with Samson. Manoah and his wife say, we saw the Lord. Manoah is the one who says it. It's a very interesting passage. Manoah says, we just saw God. We're going to die. And his wife, being the reasonable one, normally they are, she says, "Um, no, we're not because God made a promise and that promise hasn't come true yet, so he can't kill us yet. The promise has to come true. You don't see people in the Bible that say, I saw God and it was just this fluffy. No, there's a, there's a holiness. Even John in Revelation, when he sees his best friend, right? Jesus was his best friend. He falls down like a dead man. It's because God is incomprehensibly glorious and we are a sinfully lost people. Let's consider what that means to be sinfully lost. Not even three chapters into this book. 
not even three chapters into this book. God has said, hey, this is what you can do. One thing, shouldn't do this. And we say, all of those things that we can do are garbage, and the one thing that we can't do, that's what I want. And you're keeping me from joy, and you're keeping me from happiness, and that's what I want. Your rules stink. I don't like you. I wish you were dead. That's what Adam and Eve say. That's what we say. This is what R.C. Sproul said about sin. My favorite definition of sin. Sin is cosmic treason. Every time we sin, we are functionally saying, God, I wish you were dead because I don't like your rules. I wish I was on the throne. And so Adam and Eve said, let's eat from that tree that God told us not to. God doesn't know what's best for us. I know what's best for me. And we have been believing that lie ever since. What does it mean to be lost? You remember they were sent out of the garden, cut off from that relationship with God, alienated from his presence. And then if you die in a state of unbelief, if you die in determined disbelief against the gospel, sin demands a punishment and you will spend eternity separated from God forever. Our problem is not that we've messed up. Our problem is not that we've done wrong things. Our problem is that we are sinfully lost, rebellious to the core, and God's righteous wrath is stored up against our sin. You see, that doesn't really sound fair or loving. I don't know about you, but those are always my two issues with hell. Is it fair? Is it loving? Fair. Is it fair that God would send me to hell? My uh, pea brain intellectualism says, why would I have to spend eternity in a place under God's judgment when I only sinned for 85 years, however long I live? That doesn't seem very fair, right? That formula doesn't add up. 85 years equals eternity. What? We talked about this before as a church, a helpful analogy in my mind. Again, this has worked for me to understand this. If I'm playing basketball with Christian and we're shooting hoops, and, and I dunk over him, and, and uh, he gets really mad at me because I just showed him up, and um, he starts to push me, and I, I say, no, and I, I punch him. I say, get off me, I punch him. What's going to happen to our relationship? What's going to happen in that moment to our relationship? It's going to be broken, right? Next time I say, hey, you want to play basketball again? He's probably not going to say, yes, let's do this. But Christian's a great guy, loves Jesus. He's going to forgive me, and we're going to repair that relationship. What if as I start punching him, he gets super scared because I'm just incredibly hulkish and he calls the cops and the cops come out and I punch a cop. Now what's going to happen? I'm going to go to jail. So I, I punch Christian and I just say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And there's a little bit of a break, but we'll reconcile. I punch a cop, I go to jail. Let's just go all the way. I, I punch the president. I, I could be put on death row. I could be tried for treason. I, I could be killed. Same exact offense. Sometimes we think the punishment fits the crime. Yes, the punishment fits the crime, but the punishment fits who the crime was committed against. That's the punishment. If you, I love Christian. Christian's a great guy, but as far as authority is concerned, a cop has more authority than Christian, and the president has more authority than a cop. And so if I punch the exact same offense to each of these people, I'm going to get a different punishment. If I punch the God of the universe who's infinite and holy and eternal, then my punishment will be infinite and holy and eternal. Is it loving? Is it loving for God to send? God's a God of love. Is it loving for God to send somebody to hell? God is always pleading with people to repent. 
right? Biblically, we see that. God desires that none would perish. He's always saying, please come. What we saw this morning, my burden is, is easy. My yoke is light. Please come. And he's going to make that offer throughout the entirety of your life. And if you say at the end of your life, I don't want you, then it would be like when I was dating my wife. If I said, Hannah, I really like you and I would love to go out with you and I think that we'd work well together. Would you like to go out on Friday? And she says, mm, no, sorry. It's just it's only going one way, man. That's not the way I feel about you. I go, oh, that's okay. It's okay. And then I go to her and I say the next week, hey, would Friday work this week? Maybe we can hang out. I really like you. I want to be with you. She goes, no, I don't want you. It just goes on and on for years. Please, please. And then finally one day, even after being spurned by her and she doesn't want to be with me, I love her. And I say to her, I love you so much. You don't even know the way that I love you yet. I love you so much that I'm going to marry you against your wishes so that you can spend the rest of your life with me. <laughs> She'd call the cops in Christian scenario and say, hey, take him to jail twice. That's, that's creepy, right? You don't do that. There's a thousand country songs that have been written that say, if you really love them, let them go, right? <laughs> They've picked their own way. And God graciously gives you a choice. He's wooing every single person's heart. And if your heart is wooed by God, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and you have been saved. And if you love Jesus Christ, that's uh, an evidence of grace in your heart because you've turned to him not by your own power, not by your own decision, but by God t- uh, revealing in your heart the affections that you should have for him that are greater than anything in this world. But if he's pleading with you, pleading, wooing, wooing, and you finally say, I don't want you, And he's not going to force you. Nobody in heaven has been forced to go to heaven. Nobody in heaven is saying, I really don't want to be here. I guess I was picked to be on this team, but I don't like being here. Everybody loves, whoever is in heaven, they love being there because they love Jesus. Equally so, if you were to take somebody in hell and say, hey, do you want to go to heaven? They'd say, no, I don't want to be in hell, but I don't want to be in heaven because I hate God and I don't want to be where he is. So it wouldn't be a loving thing for God to just force people. He's wooing constantly. Sin demands punishment. We are punished in hell for our sin. And God graciously allows us a choice in this lifetime, and then we ultimately get what we have chosen. James Denny says it this way, amongst all of Scripture, we see this one truth, that those who refuse to submit to the gospel and love and obey Jesus Christ will incur at the last advent an infinite and irreparable loss They will pass into a night on which no morning will ever dawn. Hell is real, it is terrifying, and this life is very short. And the way that we talk about hell just tells us that we don't really know what hell is. You use that term, students ask me all the time at school, is it it wrong to use hell as a curse word? Yes, for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons is it's always wrong to trivialize a terrifying reality. Hell is a terrible place. And if you just make light of it, you're making light of the gospel as well. So be not ignorant, be not indifferent to the fact that there are billions of people, many that you know that are on their way to an eternity in hell apart from Christ forever in conscious torment. We are a sinfully lost people. But the text doesn't leave us there. Verses 6 through 7 give us the third life-altering truth. Not only is God incomprehensibly glorious, not only are we sinfully lost, but number three, Jesus is a graciously merciful 
Savior. Jesus is a graciously merciful Savior. Isaiah cries out, in depravity, I am undone. Look at my lips. I'm going to be condemned. And the Lord responds in mercy. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. And simply by that coal, he says, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. That's it. You're forgiven. How can a holy God look at a guilty sinner and claim they're innocent? They're not guilty. How can a holy God do that? In fact, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15 says that that's a wrong thing to do, to look at a guilty person and just say, yeah, it's fine, they're innocent. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Wow, that's, that's a terrifying verse. He who justifies the wicked, isn't that what God does? How can God do this in a way that's righteous and holy? Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. You know this passage. The way that God is able to justify ungodly people is because of two things. His servant, Jesus Christ, would endure the penalty of sin and would stand in the place of sinners. He will endure the penalty of sin and he will stand in the place of sinners. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Ten times in three verses, we see the exchange. We've done this, but Jesus is doing this. We deserve wrath, but Jesus bears the penalty. A lot of people have a concept of the gospel that says that God just kind of turns a blind eye to it. You've sinned, and I love you so much that I'm just going to forget you ever did that. God cannot do that. That would be unjust of God. Sin must be punished, and every sin that has ever been committed will be punished. It will either be punished at the cross or it will be punished as you bear that wrath in hell. How is this possible? Because Jesus Christ on the cross is treated by the Father as if he had sinned my sinful life and lived out my sin. Jesus is punished in my place. He's punished as if he was sinful Patrick Carmichael. So that Patrick Carmichael could be treated by God the Father as if he had lived Jesus' perfect life. That's an impossibility. I could never be a perfect person. I could never be sinless. And yet God the Father says, because I love you and because I don't want you to perish, I'm going to send Jesus to live a perfect sinless life and credit that to your account. And then I'm going to punish Jesus as if he had lived your sin out and take your sin and put it into his account. Beautiful exchange. This is grace. This is grace. It's amazing. Though God would punish our sin, he decides to put that punishment on Jesus. And friends, I, I just I want to plead with you this morning. Do you know that you have been forgiven of your sins? Do you know, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life? Are you planning on 
getting to heaven by your own goodness. Maybe you're comparing yourself to others and saying, I'm relatively a good person. Maybe you are. But compared to God's holiness, you have to be perfect to enter into a perfect place, into heaven. Jesus is the only way. He is, his cross is that coal that would cleanse us. It's a coal here as the seraphim places it on Isaiah's lips and takes away his sin. But for us, it's the cross that took away our sin, that offers us eternal life. And that leads to the fourth and final life-altering truth. We have an indescribably urgent mission. If we know that God is incomprehensibly glorious and we know that we are sinfully lost and we know that there is a way to be saved in Jesus, our merciful Savior, then we have to have an indescribably urgent mission to tell others. That's verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Once you know the reality of the gospel and the grace of God, you cannot help but tell other people about that reality. Then and only then, if you truly comprehend the gospel, can you know with confidence others need to hear this message and you're going to go. Surely this amazingly holy and gracious and loving God warrants far more from us than simply praying a prayer or walking an aisle or raising a hand. Surely this God warrants far more than nominal adherence or casual acceptance. If this God is who he claims to be and he is, then he warrants total abandonment of our lives, of our dreams, of our hopes, of our desires, of our expectations, of our everything. He deserves it all. And if you know that, you are either going to go and tell people or you're going to say, I'm going to stay here and tell people, but I'm going to send people. I'm going to send people. Why do we have an urgent mission? Why is it urgent? Just three quick things and we'll wrap it up. This mission is urgent because people have never heard it. Their knowledge of God is only enough to condemn them. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, they know since the creation of the world, God's eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. They know there is a holy God because they've seen His glory. People ask me all the time, what happens to the innocent guy in Africa who's never heard the gospel? What happens to the innocent guy in Africa who's never heard the gospel? And I can tell you, with authority from the scriptures, that guy goes to heaven, instantly goes to heaven. But that guy doesn't exist. There is no innocent guy in Africa. If you, if you put label on innocent, well, of course he's not going to go to hell. Of course he has no reason to be punished because he's innocent. But nobody's innocent those of us who have seen creation and who have understood what God has made and have understood his commands for us and have rebelled against it, we're not innocent anymore. And if we don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we only have enough knowledge to be condemned, to say, I know I've done wrong things, but how do I atone for that? How do I fix that? How do I cleanse that? There are billions of people, brothers and sisters, there are billions of people in the world who have never heard the gospel, and all they have is enough knowledge to condemn them to hell forever. What will it take for us? What will it take for you and for me for the concept of unreached people groups to be totally intolerable, intolerable for us? Like, we cannot have unreached people groups. They need to hear of Jesus. That's why I pray that God would raise up more missionaries. Go into the world. Go and tell 
unreached people groups. If you're good with language, go translate Bibles. If you're good with preaching, go be a street preacher in a place where you're not even allowed to be a street preacher and go tell of Jesus Christ. This is what Romans chapter 10 says. Romans chapter 10, verse 15, you know it. It's actually a quotation from Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I personally think feet are disgusting. I think that the opposite, whatever the best antonym of the word beautiful is, that's what feet are to me. Pure evil ugliness. My, my grandmother used to say that God started creating us with our heads and just made us beautiful, and he ended with our feet and just kind of, there it is, feet. I, how, how can you make feet beautiful? God says your feet will be beautiful and your whole self will be beautiful as you go and share the gospel. And that's why I just, to the Turner family, your, your feet and your lives are beautiful because you are saying we're going to share this message. People only have, this is an urgent message because people only have enough knowledge to condemn them. Number two, because the gospel of God's powerful enough to save. There's not a people group on this planet for whom the power of the gospel will not work. The power of the gospel works. The gospel of God is powerful enough to save. And if we understand that, point number three, because the glory of God is more than enough to satisfy them forever. The glory of God is more than enough to satisfy them forever. If you know this and you've experienced this, the satisfaction in Jesus Christ, the love that he has for you and the love that you have for him, then it's going to be a natural overflow. So we are commissioned at Christ Bible Church today to be senders, faithfully praying for those who are going. But I, I want to plead with you. Is God calling you to go? We need people who will go. We need people who will stay. That's what the Apostle Paul says. I thank God that you're supporting me. So please don't everybody go but we need more people who will go. As we commission the Turners, as we commission ourselves, we remind ourselves that missions is not the all-consuming passion of our lives. Jesus is the all-consuming passion of our life. It's not ultimately, are we a sender or are we a goer? It's just, do you love Jesus and how are you going to do that? How are you going to let other people know about his amazing love? So, as we wrap it up, how will your life be spent for that? How will your life be spent in light of those four life-altering truths? How will your life be spent in sharing Christ? What are you doing to make him known? And how will you be a faithful sender? And is God calling you to be someone who would go? You don't need a call to be a missionary. You've been called to be a faithful witness. That's all the call we need to share of Christ. And so, for us with the Turners, I think words from C.S. Lewis frame the way that we feel about them, and then I want to let Fanny Crosby finish our time together. C.S. Lewis, at the end of his Chronicles of Narnia, says, for us, this is the end of our stories, and it's only the end of the stories that we have physically in this place with them. They're still members of CBC, and we're still ministering together just in different ways. But this is the end of a story that we have had together for five years. But for them, it's only the beginning of the real story. We've been praying for five years for the Turners. 
And as they've been doing this faithful work here, we know that God's going to bless what they're doing there. It's only the beginning of what God's going to accomplish. All their life in this moment was preparation for that moment. To share of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus. He's the reason that we have joy in going, joy in sending. Brothers and sisters, this is a bittersweet day because we're saying goodbye, but we can say goodbye because there is a place coming and a time coming and a day coming where we will never, ever have to say goodbye ever again. So we can say goodbye now. And obviously, Lord willing, we'll see them again. We'll go to them. They'll come back to us. But even if, even if this were to be the last time that we would physically be able to see each other, there's going to be a day when we will be together forever and never have to say goodbye. And that day, it's going to be an amazing day of fellowship. It's going to be an amazing age of joy in the church being reunited together. But again, the goal is not us being together. The beauty of heaven is seeing Jesus and being with him. Fanny Crosby, who wrote over 10,000 hymns, you know she was blinded by an incompetent doctor. She wrote a hymn called, They Will See God's Face. She said this, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white, He will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. Pursue Jesus as your greatest treasure. Love him more than anything else. And witness to others of that amazing love that is yours in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for Isaiah chapter 6. We thank you for your word that is so clear in the way that it gives us an understanding of how glorious you are, how sinful we are, and how gracious Jesus is to take our place, to live the life we needed to live, to die the death that we deserve, and to rise again, conquering sin, conquering death, living forever, and loving us and satisfying us deeper than any satisfaction in this world. God, as we commission the Turners, we commission ourselves to be witnesses where we are, to send with joy, with excitement, with excellence, and to be witnesses here in this world where you have placed us so that Jesus Christ, you, the Lamb who is slain, would receive the reward of your sufferings. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.